something inside them that they want to get out. But I do think that the possibility to get it out doesn't exist for most men, I think, in most cultures. And is that why you, you, you have a, a character? And I think maybe it was the, the most unsettling section of the book it was, was when Caleb turns up, yeah. partly because it was such an utter shock and I kept thinking it was going to either turn into sort of you know exciting sort of sadomasochistic games and, and it was going to somehow release um, June I think it's when I started to suspect this book was really going to push right. but, but I thought Caleb was fascinating for that that it, he did feel on on the edge of some of all sorts of very uncomfortable male yeah I mean I, I think that Caleb was an interesting character for me to write because to me he was always something more than just Jude's abuser yeah. you know I mean he's someone who clearly has a life of his own and he goes on to find love after Jude and has you know an intelligent and, and capable and, and interesting person and he just confirms all of Jude's worst fears about himself but you know, one of the other things that I talk to my editor a lot about is I think when you are, there are certain people who are damaged and certain people who can always smell that damage on other people. And I don't think that for a character like Jude, my friend Jared had said something like, it would take someone as wolf-like as Caleb to get Jude to pay attention, which I think is true. I think sometimes it would, it, someone like Jude who is unaware signals people are sending him and too afraid to sort of jump into anything resembling a relationship falls right back into the patterns of what seems familiar, in this case a predator. And and like many predators, Caleb is someone who's able to sense prey. And it's a relationship that is simply a repetition of, of what he'd been doing his entire life. And the thing that I found really heartbreaking about that section for me personally was that in the section right before, Jude's probably at his healthiest. You know, he's basically told JB to go to hell. I mean, which is a sign of sort of self-possession that he hasn't displayed before. Mm. To actually not just sort of take what life gives him, but to actually stand up against it, mm. which is an important step and kind of as far as he gets. And then Caleb really shoves him back down again and it's sort of after Caleb that I think he and the reader simultaneously realize that this is probably as far as he's going to get like this is this is probably it for him you know and the rest of the book really is his struggling and struggling to resist what Caleb's taught him and what he's taught him is that he can't make it in in a healthy relationship in that context, what, why did you bring him together with, with Willem? Was, you'd think that was almost the dream moment where you know, the reader would be cheering and saying, come on, guys, make it... But is that, was that part of it, that, that even, even that can't withstand? Yeah, I mean, I, and I also think that that relationship probably wouldn't have been sustainable for the long term. It would have been sustainable for a while, but I don't think that the actual contours of it would have been sustainable forever. And it wouldn't have been enough to save him anyway. Western culture tends to let us know that if we have enough external things, I love the, 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 the vanities section, but if we have enough external success, enough friends, mm-hmm. that, that will get us through. Yeah. Success. But, the danger about hanging stuff on external, wanting external validation is all it needs is one to turn, turn around or yeah. to have one problem if you, if you don't have that, any sort of inner resource. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, I think that 
his life would have been much worse if he didn't have money. In this case in particular, I also wanted money to be something that really makes a significant difference in his life. Yeah. You know, I mean, it buys him, it does buy him dignity in a lot of senses. You know, it buys him medical care, it buys him comfort of life, ease. It buys him relief in a lot of senses. And so I don't think that the fact that he has money in this book is significant. And I think that, you know, it's something that I wanted to give him. And I, I would never say that, you know, money makes no difference because it does in his life. And um, and I think it's sort of silly to pretend otherwise. But but you're right. What he, what he absolutely needs is the stuff that he should have been taught in his childhood and never did, never was. The one thing that I was interested about was the way that JB and, and Malcolm mm. slowly drift mm. out of the book. And I was again wondering how deliberate and, and poised that was. I was almost, almost annoyed with you at one point when, after Willem dies, and I understand we see it from, JB's, uh, from Jude's point of view, but Pearl Malcolm and, and Sophie get almost, they become almost a footnote at that point. Yeah, it was meant to sort of echo the way friendships work when you're in your 20s you know you move here you move to a city as a group you think you'll always be in the group and in some senses you always are but people come in and come out and people before you kind of realize it are somehow less central to your emotional life than they were and you know they're still such an important part of your history and they'll always be there or let's hope they'll always be there but they're not the immediacy in your emotional life is no longer there and so Malcolm is somebody who I think represents a sort of steadiness for Jude and a kind of reliability and a, and a decency and but is someone whose own attentions are eclipsed by work and by by his own life and and Jude's are as well so I, I think that it was sort of meant to represent that that sort of sweet but not but not um, painful drift that we have with friends sometimes you know and, and sometimes they sort of it ebbs back the other way like it does with JB but, and that friendship, too, is, is one that I think many of us experience as we get older with longtime friends. There are these rifts, and they can last for years and years, and sometimes they repair themselves, and sometimes they don't. And with JB in particular, as I said, I think he's the character who changes the most and kind of actually moves from one thing to another. He's the character I relate to the most, JB. Was, was, yeah, yeah. In a way, his art mirrored the, the novel, the yeah. incredible attention. Yeah, to, to exactly, this. exactly. But also, he's kind of a brat and sort of, you know, and I, and I like him a lot. I mean, I have a soft spot for him, and he gets the best lines. I mean, so, but, you know, I love the, I love the section of him in Vanities when he's painting. I mean, it's... I, I relate the most to that character, but... But he's the character who I think is changes as a person and as a friend the most. You know, Willem is sort of the most decent consistently. Jude too doesn't really fundamentally change, but JB does. Is he is he a vision of of what Jude could have could have been if he had at some point got to grips? With That's interesting. I mean, I mean to me, JB is just someone who has had everything essential that life could have given him given to him which is not you know I mean which is not to say that he didn't deserve it or anything like that but he has he is a foil to Jude in that way I mean he has had a family who has adored him and has this sort of native self-confidence and has a kind of ease of self and ease in his body and um, I mean all of which are things I think Jude would want for himself and all of which are things that I think 
make it singularly perplexing for JB to understand Jude. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things I think all the characters in this book, all of them, suffer from is sort of a fundamental lack of imagination. You know, I mean, whether it's they can't imagine a different future for themselves or they can't imagine a different past, in Harold's case, for Jude. I mean, there is this sort of, and I think all of us are like this, but this sort of narrowness of, of depth of field, you know, I mean, uh, that this thinking that, you know, life is as I understand it, and therefore everyone else's lives must be similar to that. And Jude has the same sort of affliction, I think. And, you know, I mean, all of us are, I guess, relatively unimaginative. And part of what, you know, friendship in adulthood should do is make you try to imagine another person's life, which is very hard to do. And because, you know, friendship, of course, is born on things that you have in common, not things that you don't. But as you get deeper into a friendship, you have to be willing, I think, to understand that not only could someone's past be different from you, yours, but fundamentally the way they think about life, about sex, about love, could also be very, very different. And what do you do with that? It seems yeah. that JB was the one that could do, that did the dead-on impression very much of, of yeah. Jude, and there was something both you saw JB's cruelty, but also some he spent so much time watching him. Yeah, yeah, that's something else that you do learn about very close friends is that they do have the ultimate power to hurt you, and it's any deep relationship, whether it's a marriage or a parent and child or siblings or friends, you always wonder. Is this person capable of cruelty, or is there something that's going to hold, stay their hand even in the darkest moments? I mean, that's why I think you know when we think about moments that have wounded us most, it's sometimes not outlandish things like being hit or or something like that. It's when people have said something to us that, and they know exactly it will wound us because they know us the best, you know. And it's and that to me is, of course, the peril of friendship and something that Jude knows and. That's a wonderful scene where he's thinking of it. I think with, Har- with Harold, he's state, you know, I could just destroy. Yeah, yeah. Where, where did Har- Harold come? I mean, that very interesting idea of parenting. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was always looking for sort of parental extras, and I'm not sure why. I mean, I was very close to my parents, but they, when I was in high school, they left. They moved to California, and I was still in Hawaii. Oh, really? And I ended up living with a bunch of different of my teachers actually and they were these wonderful parental substitutes in, in a lot of senses because your father was a scientist I remember that yeah, yeah so they moved a good memory they moved when I was 16 and I spent the next sort of you know year and a half living with different different teachers um, off and on you know there's I think every child dreams of having different parents and it wasn't necessarily my case because I didn't like the ones I had it was just you get you it, that's when you start experimenting with different versions of who you could have been, you know, and you think, well, if this were my life, I would have been X, you know, if that were my life, I would have been Y. In, in Jude's case, I think it's, it's more about this idea that you find, you create a family base of ideals. And when you're an adult or when you're a young adult, you start defining what you really want. And instead of taking what you've been given, taking what you've been given, you start seeking out and creating your own. I mean, you know, all of us, I, I'm, I wonder if you have the same thing. I mean, all of us have, at this point in our lives, older friends mm. who 
who are old enough to be our parents and fill that role in different ways mm. because they're not they provide what an idealized parent does all of the advice all of the wisdom with none of the nagging and none of the responsibility and it's kind of a necessary role as, as an adult or a necessary kind of friendship slot that you need as an adult um, just someone who can give you the benefit of wisdom of age or experience at least but without having the sort of power to emotionally manipulate in the same way. What did your parents want for, for you? Did, you? did you have a, a strong sen- sense of that growing? You no, know, they were very, I mean, I think they wanted me to be an artist. I mean, they, they wanted me to be, yeah, they wanted me to be, a, they thought I might be a cartoonist. Um, and they encouraged it. So I was very lucky that it was always something that seemed, a life in the arts always seemed viable to them. And I was always told it was viable. And we, so were you as a, a as a kid, and we yeah constantly, constantly, d- constantly. And they were very, you know, encouraging of it. Did you pursue it? In- no, I, I sort of lost my talent um, early on. But I think they thought it was something that I would do as an adult. Um, that I would go to art school and that. What know. did you do instead? I I went to a typical liberal arts school, but I think that they. They themselves are very artistic, and I, I mean, it was only, I mean, and so, again, that's another way that JB is familiar to me, as someone who, for whom that path was a viable path, and he had nothing to rebel against in that way. Did you rebel, perhaps by being, but to, to be ambitious and career-driven, which I guess, or no, I, don't know if you, I, I don't know if you were ambitious and career-driven, but... Uh. I mean... I am. It's just that I didn't. I guess I personally just rebelled by being a brat, you know. But my parents were very, very lax in a lot of ways. And so when you have very lax parents, you tend to get a more conservative kid, I think. And they were lax about strange things. I mean, they were lax about drinking, they were lax about deadlines, they were lax about curfews, they were lax about grades, they were lax about a lot of things. And so I think that I ended up being more conservative than if they had tried to teach me otherwise. What was it? Was your life very different in when you moved, eventually moved to California? Rather I never than, moved with them. So you they, never went? No, no, no. My younger brother went, but I stayed in Hawaii. And then you went straight from there yeah, to, to, to college, yeah. Where did you go to? I went to a college called Smith, which oh, is a yeah. women's college, yeah. At Smith, did you did you have a clear idea of what you, you wanted to do? Um, yes. I mean, I'm, a, I'm also very unimaginative. I thought I would move to New York and become an editor, and that's really? exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. So how long have you been a... I was a traveler from 2005, 9, and then 10 through 15. And I really loved it because now I'm at the sort of the stage where when I do travel for work, it'll be the places I want to go. <laughs> but when I was there, it was the places they needed someone to go. And that was a great way to see the world, actually, because I went to places where I never, where I didn't have any particular interest in going, but I went anyway for the story. And it was it was a real treat. I mean, just kind of going places that particularly in Latin America, where, you know, I didn't feel about one way or the other and then ended up going and loving. Um, do, do you have a... Is there a sort of favourite place that you... Out of all the... I mean... I do love Japan. I do love Laos. You know, I love Indonesia. Um, and I love India. I try to go every other year. Is it just a restlessness about you? I mean, it, it... I mean, I think New York's very provincial, and it's easy to feel, to get, it's easy to think that you're not being provincial when you are. I mean, I think people sort of think that New York has everything, and New York does not have everything. So I think especially when you live in a big city, it's essential to get out of that big city. You know, when you don't live in a big city, you assume that it's your responsibility to see the world. And when you don't, when you live in a big city, you kind of think, oh, well, I'm fine, I'm seeing it all already, but you're not. 
like you, I've got to figure out what, what I want to do next. I want to move to Asia, you know, I want to live abroad. I don't want to live in the States for the rest of my life, and, and I have to figure out how I'm going to do that. Where do you want to go in? I would go a lot of places. I would. A friend of mine is trying to get me to move to Ubud, which, yeah, she said you can live in Bali very cheaply. Um, so, I, you know, I mean, the most work would be in Singapore or Hong Kong. I mean, I would love to live in Japan, but it's just too expensive. I don't know. I have to. I have to figure something out. What's your? I mean, what's your own relationship with with Asia? Sort of because you're. you're... I'm fourth generation American, so um, I only went to Japan as an adult. I love it there. I mean, my Japanese is very poor, but I go every year, and I have for the past 18 years. And I, um, I would, you know, people either gravitate towards the continent or they don't, and I really do love it there. I mean, I, I try to make at least one other trip a year besides to Japan. And from the states, it's a nightmare. But, but um, I would love to spend more time there. Japan is. Such a fascinating place because it is it is the most self-possessed country I've ever been to, and you know they're not really that interested in present day. I mean, they're what they're really interested in is their past and preserving the idea of their past, not so much the structures of the past, but the idea of the past. And the other thing you realize it's it's fundamentally still an animist country in a lot of ways. So, I mean, Shintoism is about the deification of objects in a lot of sense yeah. of nature, you know, rocks and of trees and so on and so forth. And so you have this country that is, I think, somewhat erroneously considered one of the most futuristic countries on earth. And yet in its traditions, in its rituals, in its sense of etiquette, in its in its in, in its religion even, is very ancient. And ancient in this sort of primitive woods, woodlands way. It's just kind of a fascinating rub between kind of the way Tokyo looks and the way Tokyo Seoul is, I think. Is that where your family... They're probably from the south of Japan. Okay. I don't even know. But, you know, they're farmers and then everyone came over to work the fields in Hawaii and that's when they came. There's a big wave of people came in the, at the end, the end of the 19th century to go to Hawaii to work the plantation and the sugarcane fields and that's when they came over. And that's your family? That, yes, because mm -hmm. you were yeah. saying it's your parents were the first generation who did, so no point worked in the, or were you the first generation I was that, the first generation God you have a good memory yeah so they worked in the cannery and they worked in the fields but then uh, yeah but so in a lot of ways it's very it's it's typical of all of those cane countries island countries in the Caribbean I mean there's certain rhythms and, and um, hostilities that are the same except it's owned by well, it became annexed by the states, and so it's a different sort of vibe. It's not an independent country, but but colonialism, in its in in many of its details and many of its similarities, lives on there. Um, it's a fascinating place, I think, Hawaii. Which you always mentioned when you went to the to the mainland states, was it in a way it's similar to you, this idea of not being quite placed. No, you know, I sort of I you know I grew up in the mainland as a kid, so I did know more of what was going on but I think certainly for my father when he went away when he was you know a kid it was Hawaii was very different then it was in the early 60s you know they still weren't getting the day's paper on you know they you know they got the LA Times and the New York Times but it was two days later it was you know a colonial a pleasant colonial backwater but still a colonial backwater how do people respond to you though when you went to say when you went to Smith because Hawaii I think we talked a little bit about this last time but Hawaii comes with so, you know, so many yeah, so yeah, tedious, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, there have been a lot of kids from my school who went to East Coast colleges, so it wasn't 
the school itself was the, mostly they were I remember the other Asians were impressed that the fam- my family had been in the States for so long because they're mostly first generation Korean kids you know in America there's just not a long presence of of, of Asians in, in, in the country. Is there still that sort of slightly odd react, you know, this sort of, yeah. remember after, you know, Pearl yeah. Harbor, there was the internment yeah. camps, all that, yeah. this, do you, can you still feel that? In Hawaii you don't, because there's mm. so many Japanese Americans, um, but in the rest of the country, sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, still, I think, I think. the novels asked these questions do you think the novels also were you asking those questions anyway the novels responded to it is it cyclical Mm, I think so I mean it is sort of an ongoing conversation that I'm still having with the book Um, and in that sense it does feel like a shape shifter because you know how I feel about it afterwards is not how I felt about it when I was writing when I was writing it was just such an intense experience that you sort of can't see your way past what, what the story is before you and then afterwards you think well, when I wrote that, was I really asking myself this? You know, and I can't think of an example now, but it's, but you see it differently as a reader once the book is done, I think. Was there, was there a, a feeling of exhaustion once you'd, yes. once you'd finished? Yeah, yeah. And relief, and, but also sorrow. I mean, it was upsetting to leave the life of this book. I did love spending time in it, as punishing as it was. Was it hard to write? Yes, very. But it was more hard to write because... Physically, it was just a hard book to write. You know, it came very fast, and so it was just about staying up and typing and typing and typing. You'd work a work day and then I would come home and write at night, yeah, yeah. Which is also why it's just not sustainable. It's not a sustainable practice, I think. Um, I did it for this one. I don't think I could do it again. But it was also exhilarating to be, you know, I mean, you know, when you're in the middle of writing something and it's going well, and you know where you're going with it, and you know you feel in control, I mean, it does feel like you're flying to some extent. So did you, you hadn't planned it? Did, were you, I you... knew more or less where I was going. Okay. Well, that's not true. I knew exactly where I was okay. going. So I knew what the ending was. I knew how the sections would break. I knew what would be covered. I knew whole scenes. I knew a lot going in very early. So it was just about, you know, I would write down stray thoughts as they occurred to me, and then I would just, it was just a matter of filling it in. It's interesting to sort of talk to you now with the, the book out, and it, I did notice mm. that it was it was everywhere in in the state. It seems to have caught mm. a mood of what well, has the reaction been like? Are you surprised by it? Yeah, I mean, no one read the first book. I mean, mm. uh, it, it it I think got more of a response here, mm. and uh, I think for a number of reasons. I mean, among them, I think that this country is much more interested in colonialism than than America, and much more interested in an allegory of colonialism mm. than in America. This book, I have been surprised by. I mean, it. I kind of thought it would find its readership among about a dozen people who would be, who I hoped would react to it passionately. But um, I don't. I don't know why. I mean, no one knows why these things happen when they do. I, I don't know why people have responded to it, but I'm humbled that they have. I mean, it's something. It sounds corny, but it is really humbling to realize that people have spent money and have sat with this book and with these characters and feel connected to them and the kinship with them. And and it's been lots of different types of readers, too, which I thought has been interesting. It's been people who have really read it because they want to cry and, you know, and have um, a sort of completely immersive moment. It's been people who have read it because... who have read it sort of as a study in... in kind of a very structured novel and then sort of everyone kind of between those two poles 
and that's been it's been gratifying to see people respond to it in so many different ways and for so many different reasons I think some people I've heard from some people who have read it and felt it opened within them something about abuse in their own past and some people who don't read it as a narrative of abuse at all but about something else and so it's been um, it's been surprising but but gratifying is that tough too I mean you must be getting I imagine there'll be lots of people who will identify strongly with Jude and yes and that's um, been very it's been very strange to have people send you emails and uh, my work address I don't know how they've been getting it just <laughs> saying you know this something like this happened to me and and, and I was really struck by it and it's um, I don't think a book can help or answer any of those things but it's it's humbling that someone would tell you something like that about themselves um, and um, do you find that difficult to carry with you? no not difficult but you do feel a kind of responsibility that you won't be able to answer I think because you kind of can't do anything other than say do you like anything else? Do you want I'm okay. Do you want anything? No, no. I was, uh, the only thing I was going to have if you were going to have a coffee. Have a coffee. I'm yeah. not going to have one, though. Yeah. It did feel like a sort of HBO series waiting mm. to happen. There has been an offer and for a series. I mean, I, that's how, the only way I'd want it to be sold yeah. is as a limited series, and I think it could do very well in that form. But I, I said no, because there wasn't an idea attached, and I think that I would want someone to present to me a plan of how they would adapt this or interpret it and I'm not so eager to sell the rights that I just want to sell them you know but I want to sell to someone who actually has some sort of concept about how they would transform it into something else and if it doesn't sell that's fine too I mean it's you know it's when you sell I think you're you're recognizing that you're taking it and handing it over to someone else to do with whatever they want so I'm not sure I'm sort of emotionally ready to do that yet, you know? <laughs> maybe maybe I won't be. Would you like just to write sort of unhindered by other mm. job? Or do you, do you, this is something a bit like you, do you need that? that I mean, group? I like having a job. Yeah. I like having an office to go to. I wish I didn't have to go in every day, but I do like having an office to go to. I like having colleagues. I, I think it, it keeps you relevant in a lot of ways. I mean, you just, you know, as you know, writing is such interior work and you're alone a lot of the time. And it's it's good to have some place you can go to um, and talk to people and, and observe them. And one of the things I'm I'm always on the lookout for is novels that are about work that are really interesting depictions of work life. And there's very few yeah. actually. You know, I mean, it's and I really wanted this novel to be about about work, about the pleasures of work, and about the salvation of work and into a limited degree. You know, I wanted to be someone who took a lot of pleasure and pride in, in what he did, especially in a, in a career that is maligned, um, but for him is really represents something different. So I do think I'll always need to have a job for financial reasons, and, sure. and I just don't think that you can do it as, as a novelist anymore. I mean, do you know anyone who does full-time? I do, I do but they tend to be much more popular so one book a year and then you do start to see the edges fray I think think there are very few writers I mean it's the Woody Allen syndrome I guess yeah 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 what are you going to do next I have no idea what I'm going to do next I have nothing planned you know I 
I don't know. I have nothing okay. planned. I have nothing planned. Is it quite nice just to be in New York with them? No, I'd rather be working on something. Oh, okay. um, so I wish I were working on something, but I also don't want to write something just to write something. I want to feel compelled to write it. Maybe that's asking for too much, but... But you clearly sort of quite enjoyed the way that you can unsettle readers. Yes, but I think there's no point in unsettling someone unless you're unsettling them for, for a reason. point. Yeah, for a reason. And you want them to sort of think in some way. I think that, you know, the difference between... Otherwise, it's just shock value, and yeah. which is not without its place and is fun entertainment, but after a certain point, it gets very hollow. But... I was happy to leave the life of that book, too. I mean, I'm happy to leave both of them, frankly. It, both of them, there's a, an argument you're having with, with the place of fiction and what fiction mm. could and you know, should and what... Not in, in terms of... I don't think fiction is meant to save anyone or meant to make anyone feel better about their lives. But I do think that fiction should always be breaking its form again and again and, and be trying to do something playful with the form. And that a writer should always be trying to reinvent what she does with the book at each time you know? so do you need so you need a, an idea that you can yeah completely yeah yeah so if you have any let me know <laughs> <laughs> can I ask to